I'm not a judge. I'm not a preacher. Like, I'm just a person trying to trying to reveal something to all of us. This is a podcast about visual art at Auburn University. My name is Chris Malinsky, Director of Education at the Jewel Colin Smith Museum of Fine Art. Today, my colleague in education, Randy Evans, talks with the artist Rachel Liebeskind about her work on view in the exhibition Invisible Thread. I'm so interested in the way in which we all individually metabolize history and visual references, and then also the way it happens on a societal level and what happens in between, that bigger societal metabolism and that the individual one. Rachel Liebeskin is an artist who works across a diverse array of media, from painting to sculpture, installation to performance. She's interested in images, text, and stories, and how those move across history and culture. Her work, the book, takes inspiration from the great books of history, both spiritual and secular. The book rests on a podium and spills over the edge onto the floor, while the other side reaches up into the ceiling, seemingly going on forever. So the book, which is which started as a real book and is now a scroll, so it has continues to change, um, is an amalgamation of multiple texts and multiple different types of images. So there is a through line that I um, put in there that's written by Julia Bossen, who's a writer in Berlin, a collaborator of mine, and she and I wrote this story together about how words choose the page. And that is very hard to actually read in the book. But if you, you know, if you come to the gallery, you can try to read. You can probably read parts of it. But there's also other texts that are relevant to this idea of a book that contains everything, like this magical, mythical object that has everything. And that's everything from, like, the encyclopedia pages to the phone book to the catalog to the Bible to the storybook to the book of poetry, right? It's like all the ways in which we as humans have used words to organize the world into these different types of text. Um, And so I like to play, I mean, that book is sort of, it's like an object from a childhood fairy tale, right? It's like a book that contains the world. And I think there's a lot of that in in the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that like the book of books, it's a book that contains everything, all the truths. And that includes the phone book, which nowadays we don't have anymore. But, you know, when we were kids, we that was an amazing object. Um, the phone book, the cookbook, the catalog, the songbook, right? And what would it mean if all the books in the world were all encased in one single binding? As a viewer, approaching the book, you realize that pretty quickly, you cannot absorb all the text that is contained. There's some that are just out of eyesight, some that are obscured, and so you're really only getting fragments to a whole. What's also interesting is that the text that you do read seems to have an agency to it. There are phrases like the poem stretched, or advertisements position themselves, or the stories began to whistle. In this way, the text becomes anthropomorphic and feels like the text is talking about itself as another sort of entity outside of human creation. The, the, the story that weaves itself through that, the book, um, is a, it, it's, it's kind of like a childlike uh, fable. That's what it's modeled on. And it's a fable about 
the way that words decide to organize themselves on the page to make all these sorts of different types of texts. And it does give agency to the words. And I think um, in many ways it is kind of a biblical idea, right, that like the words have their own spirithood and they're finding themselves and they're grouping themselves and they're creating all these different texts to be either revered or reviled. Um, and I'm very interested in that because I do think we as humans, we believe so we have so much control through our language. And yet I really think language controls us. And in many ways, language can be a prison. And it, you know, tells us that we know how to name things. And yet, we don't know how to name everything. There are many things that happen in our experiences, in our bodies, and in our souls, and in our brains that we can't put into text, right? And so I'm playing with that in that piece, right? Like how much are the words in charge of us? How much are they guiding our experience? How much are the naming of things actually predefining what we want them to be? And how much are we choosing what things are through language? But I don't know. I, I really go back and forth. I think both are very, very strong forces. The book is not comprised of pages. Instead, it's one long scroll made out of a thin, transparent material that has images and text printed on it. What's interesting about it is that from a perspective of someone who does public programming is that I noticed that when we have events in the space, there's a lot of anxiety about the fact that people could get caught in the book or get wound up in it in some way. I found this metaphor really interesting because we often think of books as something that's portable, something you can carry with you, something that you're in charge of. But in Rachel Liebeskin's book, the book is larger than us and actually has the power or potential to kind of enrapture us, enclose us in a physical way. It's not the, the little book of poetry you can put in your backpack or the little novel you had take on the trip with you. It is supposed to recall, like in Judaism, like the Torah, the scroll, right, the ark. So in Judaism, and I was not raised religious, and even now as an adult when I go into a synagogue and I experience the scroll, I'm always like, wow, I can't believe what a, like, performance this is, right? Like the, the scroll has a, has a velvet encasing, and it lives inside the ark, and it has to be revealed. And the reveal is like this big thing, and then it gets carried around the congregation, and everyone gets to kiss it. It's like the scroll is alive. The scroll is, you cannot understand everything that's in that scroll. Um, it is actually out of the limits of our bodies and our brains, and that's why it's God-given. Now, as someone who wasn't raised religious, um, but who, you know, I still understand the significance, religious and cultural significance around it, I am so interested in the ways in which the Bible and this text, and for Christians as well, and for Muslims, um, I think for all people of serious faith, the text is larger than life. It's not a book you can put away in your bag. Of course, you can take your Bible with you, but all of the world that that, that, that represents is not something that you can ever fully wrap your head around. And in fact, it's beautiful you said getting caught up in the text. It catches you, right? And it, and And you are then supposed to be sort of subsumed by it and so that's what this object is playing off of exactly that like it's going up into the sky but it's also right there and it goes onto the ground and you can kind of try to read it but you're never going to read all of it you're never going to be able to know it all and I think for me that's a metaphor of um, knowledge for all of us right like we we want so much to know everything we can know and we as humans make unbelievable uh, leaps in our ability knowledge and technology and micro and macro but we just know that there's still so much we're never going to know. Mm -hmm. um, 
And different cultures handle that tension in different ways. Because the book contains so many different historical and cultural references, as well as the way the book invites audiences to participate and engage with the book in a visceral way, I was curious for Rachel who her ideal viewer or audience was and how she imagined people interacting with the book. Oh, as everyone, anyone. I want everyone. I mean, my ideal audience is everybody. Um, And that's what is exciting to me as an artist is like you really get a range of impact and a range of interpretations. And that's like not for all artists, but certainly for me, like that's my one of the reasons I became an artist is so exciting to me to see like a vastly different interpretation of what something is or what something's about. And I'm really, as I get older, much less interested in moralization. Like I just have no interest in whether something's good or bad. I'm not I'm not a judge. I'm not a preacher. Like I'm just a person trying to trying to reveal something to all of us. Um, certainly being in Alabama, which is such an exotic place to me. Because um, I've, I mean, I really am, have not seen much of this country, and I was raised abroad, and certainly have no personal connection to the South whatsoever. It's so exciting to me, you know, to see what references stick. What is the common language I have? Is there a common language? Where is the crossover? Because that t- tells me so much, right? That's such a point of feedback for me, um, just as a person, not mm-hmm. even as a professional, just as a person on a very intimate level. Rachel moved to Berlin with her family in 1989 after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And as a child growing up in this historic moment, she was keenly aware of this duality between cultures and histories surrounding her. She talks about how this influenced her work or her understanding that there is never one single master narrative about history, but that history continues to get remade and retold in different ways over time. I asked her to elaborate on a quote that I read by her in which she says, history is collective, but also personal. You know, we don't choose where we're born, and we come into the world, and our worldview is shaped by the people who raise us, whoever those people are. And then at some point we break away from that, and we realize, oh, there's other realities, there's other narratives other than my caretaker, my parents, my grandparents, whoever took care of you. And then you have like a secondary sort of awakening in the world where you say, oh, wow, there's all this other stuff and I never saw it and I have a new perspective. And then you go to college, you have gained knowledge, right? And you have another break, right? You're like, wait, there's another way of looking at the world. And, you know, I think all those different levels of, um, I mean, for lack of a better word, kind of reality are informed by history. And our personal history, right? Like the people who raised us the way that they were raised and the and the events and forces of the world that got them there kind of fate or destiny as you want to call whatever you want to call it um that is historical right those are those forces are historical whether we like it or not i think now people think of that as political and i actually would argue that it it it's easier to just talk about it as history and i think it's more useful in many ways to just talk about it as history and then we have this collective metabolism of history, right? And the way that history is canonized, the way it's written, the way it's put to textbooks, the way it's taught, the way it's used, and I don't mean propaganda in a negative way, but the way it's used to sort of unify us, right? Like what are the things that unify us? 
And we see that playing out in a very intense way in the in the world today. I mean, not only in America, where you have like a criminalization of critical race theory, which is just a way to describe a type of history. Um, but you also see it in Europe, right? Like in Germany, where I live, like there is a big force that says like, we need to stop looking at ourselves as perpetrators. We don't want kids growing up thinking that Germany's so bad. Is that, you know, we, we need to start talking about the good things we've done, right? And I don't actually necessarily, again, I'm not here to moralize, I'm not the moral police to say that's bad or good. I just, I think it's really interesting because we, most of us believe that history is this thing that's set in stone and that what we learn, that's it. But it's really, really, really fragile and it continues to be broken and remade and retold on a collective level. And I guess what's interesting to me is that on that personal level, it's not as fragile. It's actually much stronger inside us. Like we know the truth of how we got here, how our parents got here, how our grand the, the lives our grandparents or our ancestors lived. We know that because it was handed down to us as truth. And knowing that that personal history is true, I think really allows us to understand the way in which collective history is fragile and continues to be retold and remade. And so I'm, yeah. I mean, I could talk about this for a long time. To me, it's a deeply important, interesting part of our world. And reconciling those two histories together is how culture is made, right? That's how we make the culture that we, and art and, and expression of, of our experiences. So it's um, probably the most important thing to me. My thanks to Rachel Liebeskind for talking with my colleague Randy Evans about her work on view in the exhibition Invisible Thread. All museum programs, including this podcast, are made possible by listeners like you. Visit jcsm.auburn.edu to show your support. Thanks.